You're listening to a sermon delivered at First Family Church from the series, The King and the Kings, Anticipation in the Books of Samuel. For more information and sermons, visit our website at firstfamily.church. Well, today may very well be the oddest message you've heard on David and Goliath ever, okay? I've tried to give you some warnings um, via Facebook, Twitter, that we're in this chapter not to come thinking, oh, I know what it's going to be about. It is a very familiar story. Would you agree with that? In fact, if you were to poll the average person in Ankeny, I'd say there's probably two stories that every person in Ankeny is going to know, regardless of their spiritual condition. They're going to know about Noah and the ark and about what? David and Goliath. We just they just hear about them. But for me, I think the story in 1 Samuel 17 went from black and white to HD color when I was actually over in the valley where it took place centuries ago. Here's a picture of where I was about five years ago. That's the place where I got these stones. Now, these aren't stones that were around when David picked one up and used it to take out Goliath. I realize that. In fact, uh, they tell us that they usually import stones because so many people take them from that valley, like your pastor, you know. But it is symbolic. I picked up five stones I have my office, and I just, just kind of a way to, you know, I think symbols are good. They make you think, and I just know that, that it's God. When I see this, I know God saves not by sword or spear, but by his own name. I just have a little ball that sits on top, says faith, and it just prompts me to trust the Lord and to know that Christ has won our victory for us. Amen? That's just kind of what that's for. Maybe we'll leave these up here all the service, and you just kind of see these. But when I went to that valley, and I spoke there to some folks who were with me. It, it did kind of help me see the story in a new way. Now, I can't take you all to the Valley of Elah this morning. But it is my goal to approach this chapter in a way that you will never forget the story of David and Goliath again. So that means it's going to be a little different. Okay? I'll take some questions at some point. Feel free to text them in. But let me kind of walk you through kind of how I envision handling this chapter today. Because... You're probably expecting me to read all 58 verses, kind of rehash what you know, maybe try to find some new nugget you've not heard, and then make you feel like you can go out and conquer your giants, rah, rah, let's roll. I'm not going to do that. If you want to hear a message somewhat like that, uh, go to our Facebook page. We've reposted the message I preached on David and Goliath from five years ago. It's not a total rah, rah about you. It still points to Christ, but it's a little more of an exegetical message. sermon about the 58 verses. We'd say that I preached five years ago through this narrative from the narrative uh, perspective, because I think there's three perspectives you can understand this passage from. I'll list them behind me. You can read this and understand it from the narrative point of view, or the historical aspect. We did that five years ago. Go back, listen to it. I'm not going to preach it that way today. If you're disappointed, I think when we're done, you won't be, okay? By the way, in this narrative, 1 Samuel 17, all 58 verses, there's an an amazing amount of detail that's given for the purpose of helping us uh, understand this is a very important narrative. In other words, this is probably one of the pinnacle narratives in the book of 1 Samuel. That's the current book of our study called The Kings and the King. This chapter is a pinnacle chapter in this this series. It's long, first of all. It's the longest narrative of David 
in warfare in the book of 1 Samuel. It has the most quotations in the book of 1 Samuel, 22 in this one chapter. It's got the longest quote by a pagan in the entire book of 1 Samuel. Goliath speaks 33 words. You don't find that they give the pagans a lot of talking time in the recorded scripture. But in this narrative, you find an immense amount of details, quotations, facts. They list uh, Goliath's height. They list the weight of his armor, the weight of his spear, the weight of his spearhead. They do an incredible amount of, of detail giving. Why? Because they want you to remember the narrative. Because it shows something. It's God's power that saves. The narrative shows that it's not the appearance that God looks at. Remember 1 Samuel 16? It's not the appearance. And who had the great appearance? Goliath. That's why they list all the details about his height, his armor weight, his spearhead. But it's the heart that matters. And so this is just a a picture of that. And as you read the narrative and the historical account of it, you'll see these things happening. One of the most interesting nuggets in the narrative, though, is this. And I'm not going to read it to you. But I just want you to kind of be aware of this. Some of you may wonder, like, why stones? You ever wondered that? Like, we sing a song as a kid. Didn't we sing a song about this brook and he got five smooth stones? Historically, they would not have been small, smooth. Most historians would tell you they were about the size of a ping pong ball. They were smooth in their texture, but they weren't necessarily flat. They were probably like a ping pong ball, smooth. This would have been a little small, actually. Why stones? You read the narrative, it's kind of a prominent thing that David does. He rejects the weapons, and he takes a slingshot, and he uses stones. Why? I think there's two main reasons. The secondary one is this. There weren't a lot of weapons in Israel. Do you remember 1 Samuel 13? Only Saul and Jonathan had a spear and a sword because the only folks that could sharpen weapons were in the Philistine camp. And they were charging the Israelites a heavy tax to sharpen their weapons. And so most folks didn't have a weapon. And if they did, it wasn't really in sharp fashion. So one reason that David used the slingshot and stones was because there weren't a lot of the other weapons available. Another reason was because he was good at this. We can tell that by his first shot landed squarely in between Goliath's eyes, right? But here's the main reason I believe David used stones. It was his way of showing Israel that he was an observer and a keeper of the law. What do you mean? Leviticus 24.16 says that anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord, that's a capital sin, and they're to be stoned. They're not to be killed by a sword or a spear. They're to be stoned to death. So what do you think David was doing when he got stoned, and he said, I'll take out this blasphemer? He was actually obeying the law. And showing Israel, you can trust me as your next king to obey the law. But you didn't know that. That's actually what's happening here with the stones. There's more to the story in the narrative than probably we're aware sometimes. It all shows God's power to save in his way. We can also see the story from a typological or theological perspective. This is a little difficult to maybe um, get your hands around because we don't say the word typology much. It's a word really in hermeneutics. It's a word in theology. But it, it really helps understand that the point of the historical narrative is not to make you feel like you're David. Travis alluded to this last week. The point of the narrative is to show that, that Christ is the greater David. It's, it's the kings of Israel. They all pointed to the ultimate king, Jesus. Does that make sense? And so for us to understand the text... Even in its application, we have to understand the text in its typology. 
Now, let me explain this to you. Don't lose me. There's an article on this on my blog site, toddstyles.net. Go there. It'll explain this in detail. Let me just give you a kind of an overview. Typology is always a way that scriptures point to God's promise. Here's a shadow, and then the promise fulfilled, that's the substance. So David's a shadow. David's the, the uh, kind of the form. Christ is the reality. He's the substance. In typology, what we do is we see that the original Old Testament context, the original Old Testament story, and the character, which would be called the type, has a fulfillment, and that's called the antitype. Let me show you a chart that kind of walk you through this. If we don't follow this pattern, if we don't let the original context and the Old Testament type, which is David, lead us to the antitype, what happens is we end up getting into allegory or moralism. If you take out that diagonal line and you go straight from context to application, that's where the story sometimes in churches get to where you're the David, you can do it, rah, 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 go for it, beat your giants. Now, that may work for Zig Ziglar or some Tony Robbins kind of guy, right? It doesn't work for the Bible because you're not David. Jesus fulfills David's shadow. Now, it's okay to make application. Are you with me, church? I'm not saying we don't make application. I will today. I think we have to make application in the right way. We first of all point to the antitype. That's the correct theology. And then from that, then we make the application. That way we avoid moralism and allegory. Moralism and allegory always leaves you as the centerpiece and you trying to get better. But what good does that do if we can't solve the real root problem, which is our sin nature? Amen? But Jesus, as the fulfillment of all that David is in the shadow, solves not just the external. He solves the heart issue. He conquers Goliath, our sin. And so we can make application, yes, but only after we see the story unfold in its true theological, typological manner. So I hope those two ways that we can see this chapter at least give you some of the background. I don't want to spend our time there, even though we've spent about five or six minutes already. I don't want to spend our, our book of our time there. I want to spend our time understanding the story contextually, which means this. How does 1 Samuel 17 fit into 1 Samuel? Why does it come after 16? Why is it before 18? Why is this story placed where it's... Because I feel like one of my main roles here is to teach you the Bible in a sequence. In other words, how does the narrative fit in the meta-narrative? How does this story fit with other stories? And so today, this will be the oddest message on David and Goliath you've ever heard. Why? Because I'm going to show you how this story fits in with David and Saul, the previous story. We'll see in the next few weeks how it fits in with David and Jonathan. And I think when you leave... Not that, that it will, not that it's about me. I just think when you leave, you'll be thankful. Like, okay, I get this story to a deeper degree now. So what do you say we dive in? Understanding this story contextually, in other words, how it fits in the overall narrative, means you have to ask yourself a question. What was happening in 1 Samuel 16? Well, in 1 Samuel 16, as Travis laid out for you, God was selecting for himself a what? A king. And God was selecting a king... Who would have what? Not just the outside, but who would have what? The, the heart. Good word. That's the word that was used in 1 Samuel 16, 7. He said, man looks on the outside, but God looks where? On the heart. 1 Samuel 17 is an illustration and a definition 
of what that looks like. Now, is it an, is it an anointing of David's, uh, excuse me, is it a confirmation of David's anointing? Yes. We're not denying that, but it's, a, it's also an illustration of what a heart after God's looks like. Okay? I think we arrive at this understanding by noticing the key word in the chapter. It's a four-letter word. It's the word defy. It's found in three interactions. And these are the parts of the story I want to read with you. They're found in 1 Samuel 17, right around verse 26. They're found in 1 Samuel 17, right around verse 36. And then again in verse about 46. There are three interactions. David has one with his brothers, one with the king, and then one with Goliath. Each time we see the word defy... It's also used by Goliath in verse 10. So let's just read these, and we're going to kind of get a sense now of what's really driving this chapter. How does it really show us what's in David's heart, which is why God selected him? Here's what Goliath says in verse 10. Here he is, of course, coming out day after day for 40 days, defying the armies of Israel and defying God. He says in verse 10, The Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. But then David shows up bringing lunch to his brothers. He sees this happening, this great fear and this dismay that's happening. And so he's hearing this talk. Look at verse 24, 25. Here the men of Israel are saying, man, have you seen this man, David? He's come up again to what? Defy Israel. Hey, the king will give the man who kills him He'll enrich him with great riches. He'll give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. That's a real tax break, by the way, okay? It's a real bonus for beating this giant. And what does David say? Here's David's first response to these individuals, his brothers. He says, And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? Up to this point, no one has worded it that way. They've been fearing for their life. Church, watch this. Church, listen to me. They've been fearing for their life. David is stirred because of God's honor. They're worried about their name. David's worried about God's name. Who is this blasphemer, this Philistine that's bringing this reproach upon Israel? Look at that. Verse 26 closes. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should say it with me? defy the armies of the living God. Who does he think he is? He's got worthless idols of wood and stone, and he's blaspheming. The word defy means to heap shame upon. He's bringing shame upon our God and us? Is no one else aware of this? Is no one else concerned? Am I the only one who's seeing this? This is David's heartbeat right now. So he goes to Saul, and he's going to fight. Saul obviously kind of opposes this initially, but when he finally concedes, he wants to put his armor on him. You know the story there. And In convincing Saul to let him fight, he says in verse 36, your servant has struck down both lions and bears. He's kind of giving his resume here. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has what? Say it with me. Defied the armies of the living God. Fourth time it's mentioned. So David not only tells the individuals close to him, Guys, are you okay with this guy defying God and his people? He tells King Saul the same thing. Hey, this guy's defying God and his people. I'll take him out. I've taken out a bear. I've taken out a lion. 
Now watch this. David's saying that God has used him to protect a flock. He will now use him to protect his people. His confidence is amazing, but it's not his confidence in himself. He says, the Lord who delivered me, verse 37, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. So David's confident, but not in himself, but in God's power. So he does go to battle. He takes a slingshot. He takes his five stones. He meets Goliath. Look what he says in verse 46. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. By the way, that would have weighed Goliath down to a large degree. He was a big man. Probably had what we would call in the medical world gigantism. He's from the uh, people of the Gath. So they had several giants. There are several Goliaths in Scripture. He was one of these giants, so he could carry this stuff easily in one sense, but it would make him slow and immobile. And so David chose a strategy, kind of a a weaponry and stones and a slingshot that was very agile, quick and mobile. And so with that, he says, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have, say it with me, defied. Of course, strikes the Philistine with the stone. Notice what he says before he does that. He says, I will give the dead bodies of the host of listings this day to the birds of the air, the wild beasts of the earth. And then he says that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. David's heartbeat, watch this church, wasn't just personal, which is what you find in the first interaction with the individuals. And it wasn't just communal. You find that in the second interaction. He's talking to Saul on behalf of the nation. David's heartbeat was that God's name be known globally he wanted the entire earth to know there is a God in Israel as well as this assembly to know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand and he then strikes Goliath and Goliath falls down he cuts his head off and you know the story right but what's driving this whole story It's David's heartbeat for God's name and honor. Five times the word defy is mentioned. Three interactions in which we see David discussing this and talking about it. What drove David to say to his brothers, I'll fight him. To say to Saul, I'll fight him. To say to Goliath, "Uh, you're going down today. It wasn't that he wanted his own name to be great. He wanted God's name to be great. And so let me just kind of make this simple. I'll cut to the chase. We've got some application to make. Let's just cut to the chase of this chapter. What is a person after God's own heart in its most purest, textual, strictest sense? It's a person who hallows God's name. Who doesn't run when God's name's at stake, so to speak? Who's not worried about what people think of them? Image is not their concern. Their main aim, their only concern is one thing. God's name. And they want the people immediately around them to know. They want their community to know. And they want the whole earth to know. God saves. This is the the essence of someone who's after God's heart. Does that make sense, guys? Now, we didn't tell the whole story in all of his rah-rah fashion. You're right. We got underneath the story. We got to really what's driving the main character, David. And really, 
The antagonist, Goliath, what's driving him? He's blaspheming God. And this stirs and bothers David. So all of David's actions are driven by this sense of, of, of defending God's honor, so to speak. And also, church, what is Defending God's people. They wear his name. So at the root of this beautiful story that you've sung about for years, that you learned about as a kid, at the root of this story is a single individual who wasn't worried about his name, but about God's, and used by God to remove the reproach of sin from the people. Now when you see it from that angle, which is the textual observance of the key words and the flow of the narrative, you begin to see how David is no doubt a type of Christ. Because what has Christ done for God's people? He has removed the reproach of sin from us. Amen? He has fought our battle. He has won our victory. He has beaten your Goliath. So don't run to be David Rest in Jesus, the greater David. He's taken away your reproach. He loves God's people, the church. He gave his lifeblood for the church. And in doing so, he bought the church, and the church now has victory. So, so David did it for God's people. Christ ultimately did it once and for all, satisfactorily for God's people. This is really the essence of being someone who's after God's heart, who has a heart like God's. It's, it's a person whose aim is God's holy honor. It's a person who's, whose life purpose is wrapped up in the, the, the fame of God's name, not their own name. They live for the, the glory of God, not their own gain or good. This was David. So if you ever wonder, so what does it mean when 1 Samuel 16 says... God looks at the heart, and he's chosen a man with a heart like his. It means he chose a man who, unlike Saul, which, by the way, was worried about his own name, his own image, who is mostly concerned, David is, with God's name, God's fame, God's glory. That's the kind of heart that God is looking for. Let's sum it up in a single sentence, can we? Here's a, a, a kind of a technical definition of it, but I worked hard to try to make sure you kind of get this. I want to make sure that we see the contextual flow of this narrative and understand really why it's where it is. It's showing us a picture of what 1 Samuel 16 states. And here's what the picture says. That a man after God's own heart is one or a person. It's someone whose overarching priority is living for the honor of God's name. And so they wear their true identity faithfully and fearlessly. Does David show us that? Yes. Does Christ ultimately fulfill that? Yes. Are there applications we can make from this? Yes. But they flow best when we see the the type and the anti-type first. So understand, 17 is a picture of what God stated in 16. He chose a man for his own heart. What does it look like? It looks like the guy when the chips are down and God's people are running scared who for the sake of God's name stands up. That's what it looks like. And that's exactly what David did, and that's exactly what Jesus did as well. Now, before I move to some application in the right vein, let's see if there's any questions that may have come in. There's one question. Does the believer need to have a heart after God to be saved? Yes. 
I'm not sure about the way it's worded is the right way, but I don't think you can have a heart after God if you're not saved. So it's impossible to dissect these words. A person with a heart after God will be a believer because that's where we get our heart from is God. You with me? And then he'll transform that heart more and more by his spirit's power so that it is a heart after God. So his name matters most and not ours. Now, what I want to do for a minute is this. Let me show you Acts 13, 22, which will kind of lean into showing you why this definition, I think, is textually accurate. And then I want to make some application. And this is where I want to kind of hone in on how does this show up in our life. Here's Acts 13, 22. Paul said this of David. Notice that one of the words he uses, which I think really shows his, his desire to make sure God's name is above every name. He says that when God had removed him, speaking of Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart. Now watch this descriptive phrase. Who will do what? All my will. The implication being Saul did some of the will when it was convenient for him. You with me? When it benefited Saul, when it made his name great, when it worked on his image, when it helped his brand, yeah, we're good with that. But David had a heart after God's because he was going to do all of God's will. It wasn't filtered through how's my name look in the end? Who gets the credit? That wasn't how David filtered things. So Paul just really affirmed what the Old Testament lays out for us. That a person with a heart after God's is one who hallows God's name. They have the same priorities as God. His holiness, his name, first and foremost, all the time. Now, you're probably thinking, well, Todd, uh, that's good to know. Thank you. Um, I've not quite heard the contextual perspective of 1 Samuel 17. But um, is that it? Like, what do we do with this? Like, is it just knowledge? Now, you don't get off that easy today. I want to take some minute now, now that we understand the, really the right way to apply this and who he's speaking of and what's going on, I want to ask us a question. Are we a people after God's heart? Can the chapter, rightly understood, give us some insight into evaluating our own heart? How does a heart like David's Fulfilled perfectly in Christ, of course. But how does a heart like that show up in 2017? Are there clues in the text that would help us? There are. I've summarized them in four words. I want to walk you through them. I think one of the first words that will typify a person with a heart like God's would be the word sensitivity. And by that I mean sensitivity to sin. All right? Now listen very carefully. If you read the text, you read the narrative, you'll find that it's not until about verse 26 that that we begin to see someone in Israel understanding what's really going on. Goliath had made the statement 40 days, hasn't he? He's like, hey, I defy the ranks of Israel. I defy your God. But no one's calling him out as a blasphemer. No one's stating the obvious. This is a reproach to God's people. Until David shows up and his sensitivity is incredibly um, uh, deep and quick. I mean, it's the first thing he notices. You know, David doesn't really notice how big he is, does he? David does not notice all of his physical attributes. David notices one thing first and foremost. 
this guy's a pagan and he's blaspheming God. Does that not bother anybody? <laughs> Wouldn't you love to have been in that camp with a guy with such deep spiritual sensitivities? And, and I'm going to say it this way. I hope you'll hear me well. And less physical sensitivities. Sometimes the American church is the opposite. We notice the externals, don't we? We notice what you drive and where you work, what you give, who your friends are, how many likes you got on Facebook, what you tweeted out last. We notice that. Sometimes the American church, you wonder where are the voices that call out in our culture? This is sin. We've become fearful and dismayed, much like the ranks of Israel, haven't we? I think it's a great measuring stick for a believer to begin to evaluate, how is the sensitivity of my heart to the sin around me? Now listen very carefully. You'll misunderstand me. You'll hear what I'm not saying. I'm not calling you to a Christian jihad. Oh, I saw someone sin. I'll take him out. Give me a slingshot and a couple stones, Todd. It's not what I'm calling for. Let's be clear. Jesus has already won the battle against sin. Amen, church? Amen. Amen. So you're not on some mission to correct every sinner. There are avenues in the New Testament church by which we discipline church members, which we hold each other personally accountable. I'm with all that. But I'm not calling on you to start being like this snoopervisor of sin and let me find out who's wrong now and I'm going to nail him. That's not the point. My point is that we dig a little deeper to find out what's driving David's um, reaction here. And it's his personal awareness that God's name has been blasphemed. I want to ask you a question. How quickly are you, how quick are you to recognize that by either the sin around you that you've done, the sin around you that's been done to you, or just the sin around you? It, it, there's something bigger going on here than just this person was hurt or this was it. God is being blasphemed. Are you aware of that? And does it weigh heavy on you? This is a wonderfully insightful test for believers. How heavy does sin weigh upon you? Now, on the heels of that, let me say something to you. It's impossible to fix the effect of every sin, whether done by you or to you or around you. But there is a certain spiritual healthiness to feeling the weight of it and then realizing that you're forgiven of it by the forgiveness of the greater David Christ. See, some of us, we want to run from the weight of sin because it's a hard experience. Confession, realization, spiritual surgery, we're not up for those. I I think that's why there's few people with a heart after God's. I want to call you as your pastor, I want to call you to a deeper, greater sensitivity to sin. Not to fix everything, but I do want you to feel the weight of it. 
And not because it hurt you or hurt that person. Those are consequences and effects that, yes, we see, we can't always fix. But, but I want you to feel with it because, wow, God's name's being blasphemed. And I want you to feel this personally. It would be one of the best realizations to move you towards holiness. So when you snark against your wife, you sarcastically undermine her authority. Or when the wife sarcastically undermines her husband's authority. Or when you berate your children. And then when you realize, oh, that was wrong. Uh, I'm just, I'm only human. No, 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 wait. That's not the kind of sensitivity we're looking for. That when those things happen, you realize I've sinned against God. And my marriage is designed to showcase how much Christ loves the church and I just belittled and mocked my wife or my husband. Yeah, yeah. God, I'm sorry. Confession, deep realization of our sin. Does that make sense? That's just one illustration. If you're like me, you've got a whole list of things that, that you do. Like, oh, I got a lot of sins to deal with. Yeah, and I think one of the best places to, to get to is when we're so sensitive that we feel the weight of our sin. That's a good place to be spiritually. Not that you can fix it again, but feeling the weight of it, I think sometimes then, we, then when the forgiveness arises out of that, the forgiveness is even greater than the weight of it. So sensitivity, it's a gauge personally for the status of our heart. Another word, the idea of authority. You know, David was quick to obey, wasn't he? You know, he didn't sit down with individuals or the brothers, even with the Saul's interaction, uh, King Saul's conversation. You know, he wasn't really trying to negotiate if he would fight. He was ready to go. Obedience was never a question for David, was it? Why? Do you think David felt confident in his own ability? No. But several times in the text, we see that David said, the Lord will give him into my hand. I think what David knew was that God had promised victory, which is why I think he went and got the stones. He knew the law. He knew the Torah. He knew to stone a blasphemer. So to David, God had spoken. Why are we waiting? The authority of Yahweh was crystal clear to David. And so it wasn't a matter of negotiating, bartering, analyzing, figuring out, or voting. (laughs) It was simply doing. Question for you. How quick are you to obey when God speaks? My sense is this, and I hope you'll hear this well, that you can test your heart's condition by the pace of your obedience. In fact, let me just be really frank with you as your pastor, as your shepherd. Some of you take way too long to obey. It's like years over things that you know are crystal clear. Like, like, like what's with that? See, see obedience. Authority. Who, who's speaking? God's not our consultant. He's our king. He has spoken. So our obedience is the next step. And quick obedience to what God says is indicative of someone with a heart after God's. Uh, Another question for you. Think with me, just in your own heart, 
What is the one thing that you know God is asking you to obey in right now? Just think. And there, there could be a lot of different answers, but just think in your heart. What's the one thing right now you know, man, God has been asking me to or not to or just fill the blank in. What's your next obedient step? You got it? Okay, question. Why are you waiting? Now, there may be a legitimate reason, by the way, in how things unfold and processes and conversations. I get that. But have that talk with yourself. And if there's no reason, then, then just obey. Because the authority is clear, amen? God has spoken. The next word is community. This is the one that's pressed on me the, the, the hardest in thinking about this contextual perspective. You know, when David showed up, I think, yes, he was dismayed. I mean, it, it bothered him. It stirred him that God's honor was being blasphemed. But I noticed that several times he would, he would call the Goliath the uncircumcised Philistine. It's a call out to, to, uh, to Goliath's, uh, he's not part of the covenant community. But then he was also looking back at Israel. Hey, guys, you know, guys, this is a reproach upon us. He sensed something wasn't right in the faith family. And David was not ashamed to be a part of God's covenant family. And I think in his mind, he's wondering, why are you guys ashamed to be who you are? We're the armies of the living God. They're just armies of dead, worthless idols of stone and wood. Let's follow God and obey him. I mean, David had a sense of, I don't want to use this word correctly, humble pride in this community of which God had made him a part. I think there's some insight there when asking ourselves, do I have a heart after God's? We have to ask ourselves this, how quick am I to own the name he's given me? See, David had no problem owning the name he was given. He was part of God's covenant community. The only, up to that point, the only theocracy in the world. Now, obviously, that changed with the kings, but God was still their source, their provider, their protector. It was a unique relationship to all the other nations. David was like, yeah, that, that's me. I own that. That's, I'm one of God's chosen people. I belong to Israel. Question for you. How quick are you to own God's name? Listen very carefully to me. We are Christian people. We've been eternally loved, eternally chosen from before the foundation of the world. We've been bought at a high price, the blood of God's Son. We've been empowered by the Spirit of God. We are the... Loved bride of Christ. We're empowered by the Spirit of God in this current age, this present world, to shine His lights among those who don't believe until the Son of God returns. This is who we are. We are God's people. And it is amazing to me why so many of us run from that. You are blood-bought fundamentally, eternally called and loved, let's just wear the name. Amen? We are Christian. Or let's say it the way it was originally said. We are Christians. It was said in ridicule back in Antioch, first century. Oh, you're one of those. Oh, you're a 
Christian. It's high time that the church, with the right kind of humility but acknowledgement, say, yes, I am a Christian. I follow Jesus. Whatever that means and whatever comes from that, so be it. Are you with me? See, this is, this is really what drives, this is what's at the heart of some of the heart after God. It's not the culture's approval, like, or stamp that we're after. David had one thing in mind, God's name and God's glory, and he was going to wear that in the appropriate manner. And I think by application, we too should wear the name of the one who died for us and secured our victory just as well and acknowledge we do belong to him. Will this cost you? It will. I was amazed this week to see that Princeton University rescinded an award they gave Pastor Tim Keller. Tim Keller is a Presbyterian minister, a solid theologian. I like reading his books. We have a few points in which we differ. But on the things that matter, man, just a a, a wonderful leader for our nation. Um, Just a solid thinker about Reformed theology and and the Bible's understanding of, of God's work among us. His pastor's church in Manhattan started in the 80s. Uh, and he's just nationally known, probably worldwide, he's just been a kind, rational, clear voice for the gospel. Princeton awarded him some kind of Abraham Kuyper award, they call it. I'm not sure all the details. Um, but they got such backlash from their faculty and students and alumni that, they had to res- that, that the president rescinded the award. Now, Tim wasn't surprised. I don't know Tim Keller, but from what I've read, you know, it kind of comes with the territory. If you're a conservative theologian, good luck uh, anyone thinking you're, you're sane, all right? <laughs> I mean, in our culture. What I told you was so interesting, though. I said, you know, if, if Tim Keller gets laid out, what hope is there for any of us? Because I think he's probably the kindest voice I've heard for conservative Christianity. Just good, solid orthodoxiology. I mean, I mean, sometimes I get really uptight and I'll get going and you're like, man, are you mad? And I'm not mad, but you just kind of get a little pumped up, right? I mean, Tim Keller is just, he's just, I've never seen him in a, have an unkind moment in the pulpit. And yet he, they took him out. He didn't deny who he was, though. He said, I'm a Christian. This is what I believe. This is what the Bible teaches. I love that about him. I just want to call you to to owning the name, to wearing the name of the one who bought you, the head of our body, Jesus Christ. Amen? And when you find, watch this church, if you find, when you find that you're running from that name, that identity, it should give you pause. When there's a resistance to a horizontal identity because of like, flack or kickback, it should make you pause and think, is there actually a vertical regeneration? Think it through. Is your heart really after God's? Let me skate on some thin ice for a minute. One of the ways we see that kind of heart is, like we said, in identifying with the body. And I don't just mean the prioritization of like the weekend gathering. You know how I feel about that? And I think as a whole, we would say, yes, we, you should prioritize. You should make the weekend gathering something that your family um, 
consistently prioritizes, that your faith family matters. Here's what I want to challenge you with. Sometimes we can enter those, build, those doors and hide in the corners of this room and never show up again, and we kind of check off a box, don't we? Well, I, I went to church. I checked in with God's family. I got a question for you. When you see the other ways that God's family is connecting, and I'm on some thin ice here, and, and I get it that schedules and, and things happen and not everyone can go to everything. I get that. No one can. But, but when you find that, there's, that you're always backing off from everything God's family's doing, that you're running and hiding from any kind of association, that's not a calendar issue. That's not a schedule problem. That's a heart problem. You need to hear that. If no lighthouse ever works, if there's never a friend in the church, if no women's or men's, or I mean, if, if, if it's always, well, you know, it just never works. I can never make it. Really? I, I don't think that's a calendar issue. It's not a schedule problem. Somewhere there's a heart issue in there. And my suggestion, let's let, let's, let, let's let God start digging that out a little bit. Because identifying with his body, man, that's a priority for those whose heart is after God's. We're not ashamed to wear his name and to be associated with his people. Lastly is the word Glory. You see this when David says he wants the whole earth to know. This is really what's um, David's ultimate aim. And I need to hurry through this, but just understand something. This is in this is the overarching umbrella over all of David's actions, that God be glorified, that, that, that the nations know. Okay? And Israel was a missional community. It was God's design from the get-go that all the nations be blessed through them. So this is not anything new, but Israel had gotten scared. They backed away from their calling to let the nations know and the nations be glad. So David here is just echoing what God said to Abraham. The nation should be blessed. And his goal is that all the earth would know. Question, is God's global fame on your radar? It should be. That does not mean God's fame in Ankeny doesn't matter. I'm not saying that. Don't hear what I'm not saying, all right? Does God want a strong church here? Yes. Does he want us to have a strong average in Ankeny? Yes. But God desires the nations know. And so we want to be involved in, the making, in making disciples of all nations. That's what's going on. In other words, God's glory is paramount. It's, it's, it's umbrellaed over everything. John Piper says it like this. He'll say that, we are, that God is most glorified when we are what? Most satisfied. But flip that, it's equally true. Listen very carefully, church. You are, you'll be most satisfied when God is glorified. What does that mean? Listen very carefully to these words. That whatever your current condition, whatever your present situation, be it traumatic, successful, difficult, a trial, recovery, pain, whatever your current condition, if God's character is magnified, mission accomplished. But Todd, what about me? I don't feel great. 
that hurt. I don't like this trial. I'm not sure I'm into that pain. Yeah, I get that. As humans, that is our first reaction. But our ultimate goal is not our comfort, but God's character being magnified. And we'll find that we are most satisfied when God is glorified. So whatever your current condition on either end of the spectrum, if God's character is being magnified, mission accomplished. People are seeing whose name matters most. Let me tile this back to the antitype and I'll be done. Because these four words, they bring up conviction in all of us, don't they? Well, I've got to do that better. I've got to do that better. I mean, I, my name leads the list. I'm thinking, I've got to do all of these better. There's someone who did them perfectly. Jesus Christ. And just as these threads marked David's story, they marked Christ's story at his most important moment, the apex of history. Watch this. The cleansing of the temple before he went to the garden. Was Jesus righteously angry? You know it, church. (laughs) He overturned the tables. He drove them out with a whip. Why? Because God's name was at stake. Blasphemy was occurring in God's house. You find Christ being incredibly sensitive and rightly so. In the garden, what does he pray? Not my will, but yours be done. He understood the right authority. The week continues. He's on the cross And does the community of God matter so much so that he gives his life's blood to purchase for himself a peculiar people? He understood community, didn't he? He gave his life for us. Yes, you, yes. But what did Jesus purchase on the cross? The scriptures say he purchased the people of God. If there's ever been a community guy, it's Jesus Christ. And when he was raised from the dead... What was God vindicating? That Jesus was Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, and when he ascended, glory to the Father. Jesus Christ actually lives all of these threads perfectly. The ones we find in David. So don't leave here thinking, I've got to do all of these better. Don't, you don't wrestle to get a heart after God's. You rest in what Christ has done. And he gradually takes you in, molds and forms your heart to give you the heart that we see in 1 Samuel 17, ultimately fulfilled in Christ, the heart after his.